The Lord be with you. Let us pray. O Jesus, Master Carpenter of Nazareth, who on the cross through wood and nails has wrought man's full salvation, wield well thy tools in our hearts, thy workshop, that we who come to thee rough-hewn may be fashioned into a truer beauty by thy hand, who with the Father and the Holy Spirit lives and reigns, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Well, welcome back. We are in a study of the Gospel of John. And we are continuing in that great chapter in John, chapter 3, which deals with Nicodemus and that great passage about the love of God. And now we come back to a familiar character, and that is we come back today to John the Baptist. We've already encountered John the Baptist thus far in the Gospel of John. He appears very early on. We said that there is a sense in which John is really that figure that pulls all things together at the beginning of the four Gospels. Uh, each one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, begins in a slightly different way. You know that Matthew and Luke begin with genealogies, tracing Jesus' earthly lineage back to King David. Uh, Mark's Gospel begins with Jesus' baptism in the Jordan River, not because John is oblivious or unaware of uh, the early parts of Jesus' life, but simply because as far as he's concerned, that's really where the rubber hits the road when Jesus begins his public ministry. John's gospel begins much further back than any of these. It begins back uh, before time itself. In the beginning was the Word, and Word was with God, and the Word was God. So all four of the gospels begin in a slightly different way, and yet there is a point where the narratives all converge, and that is with this person of John the Baptist, who we've already talked about a little bit, but John returns to here in the latter part of chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles with you, please open them to John chapter 3. We're going to begin at verse 22 and read through the rest of the chapter. We may get through this chapter and into chapter 4 to another exciting individual, the woman of Samaria. On the other hand, we may not. So, but here we are, John chapter 3, beginning at verse 22. And after this... Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing in Enon near Salem, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi... He who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard. Yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son 
and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. We talked about the fact that John is one of the most important people in the entire Bible. It's ironic because he really only appears for a relatively brief period of time in the biblical narrative. If you read through the New Testament, you're going to hear a great deal more about people like Peter. You're going to hear a great deal more about Paul. In fact, if you read the story of the apostolic age in the book of Acts, one of the things you'll notice is that John the Baptist is hardly mentioned at all. Uh, you could divide up the book of Acts any number of ways, but one way you can do it is to divide it into halves. The first half of the book of Acts deals with the ministry of Peter, who was that great apostle to the Jews. And the second half of the book deals with the apostle Paul and his great ministry among the Greeks or the Gentiles. So that's one way to divide up the book. But you hear so much about Peter and Paul, and you hear a great deal about some of the other disciples as well, James and John and Andrew and so forth, but John the Baptist appears only on the screen for a blip. And yet, Jesus said, of all the men born of women, there has never been anyone greater than John the Baptist. Now, coming from the lips of the Lord himself, that is very high praise indeed. And it's worth asking, what was it about John the Baptist that made him such an extraordinary figure? Certainly, if he is the greatest man ever born of women, aside from the Lord himself, what is it about John that you and I should desire to emulate? Well, since we've already dealt with him in the past, let me just suggest a few things to you this morning. First of all, I think it was John's humility that was praiseworthy. John was a humble man, and it's not because he had reason to be. You know, there are some people that have reason to be humble, but that is not the case with John the Baptist. John the Baptist was an extraordinary figure in practically every sense. Uh, to begin with, we're told he was extremely popular. Uh, keep your finger there in John and turn, if you will, to Matthew chapter 3. And you'll get a sense of just how popular John the Baptist really was in these early days. John chapter 3. And we're going to start at verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now, John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all of Judea, and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. All of Jerusalem, all of Judea, all of the surrounding countryside was going out to John. He must have been an incredible preacher. Because he was an odd duck, to say the least. I mean, look at the way he was dressed. Look at the diet that he had. And his message was not the kind of message that is an easy message to hear. The message was what? Repent. 
He even called some people a brood of vipers. Matter how that, just imagine how that would go over on a Sunday morning if one of us climbs into the pulpit and, and refers to the congregation as a brood of vipers. But John did it, and we're told that people went out to him. There was something in his message that cut them to the core. And they were drawn to him like moths to a flame. We're told that some even thought that he might be the Messiah. Everybody was anticipating that the Messiah was going to come, and many thought it had to be John the Baptist because everyone was touched by his message. The high and the low, the educated and the ignorant. In fact, John's gospel earlier on tells us that an official delegation was sent out from Jerusalem, from the Sanhedrin, that is the highest body of authority within Jerusalem, in Judea, in Judaism, to ask if John might in fact be the Messiah. Now, when you've got an official delegation going out from the Sanhedrin, what that means is that they are prepared to name John the Messiah. All he has to do is say the word. Now, remember that the Messiah to most Jews in the first century was either a political or a military Messiah. But the one thing that they believed that he was coming to do was to be a king, to reestablish the glory days of David and Solomon. And this official delegation with all of the crowds going out were saying, hey, look, if you're the king, just say the word and you'll be lifted up high upon a throne. You'll be our savior. Now, I don't know about you, but popularity is a dangerous thing. It, it can make the person who's extremely popular, for whatever reason, drunk with the idea of their own magnificence. What a temptation that would have been for John. All he had to do was say the word. And the people and the leadership of the people would have named them, named him their king. Reminds me of the story some of you may have read it, the short story by Rudyard Kipling. Uh, if you've never read the short story, you can see the movie. It stars Sean Connery and Michael Caine. And the movie is, and the book are entitled, The Man Who Would Be King. Anybody ever see it? If you know the story behind the man who would be king, it's a cautionary tale, really, is what Kipling intended it to be. But it's the story of two non-commissioned British officers who had been serving in India with the British Army back in the 19th century, latter part of the 19th century, and uh, they desert. They desert the British Army in India, and they go wandering off, and eventually they make their way to a portion of Afghanistan, a portion that was relatively unknown at that time period to white folk. And when they get there to this portion of Afghanistan, they come upon a tribe that is extremely wealthy. They have a great deal of gold and so forth, but they're pretty much ignorant. But the one thing was this, they had been looking for a Messiah. They, they had a prophecy that there would come a savior who would be the king of the people. And one of the emblems of this Messiah was something that looked very much like a Masonic emblem. And it just so happens that in the movie, at least, Sean Connery's figure is a member of the Masons. And he's wearing a medallion around his neck, which the natives take to be the symbol that he is this God. And they want to make him their king. And his friend is warning him that there's a danger in this, but 
Of course, the temptation. I mean, all he had been was a mere sergeant in the British Army, and now here he was in a place that was filled with riches, and the people are ready to acclaim him not only as a king but as a god. Now, how does the story end? Well, you'll have to watch it. Because I'm not going to tell you, or you're going to have to read the story. As I said, it's a cautionary tale. But the point is that he gets drunk with the idea of his own magnificence and his own power, and he takes on this role. And I'll tell you this much, it does not end well. <laughs> what a temptation that would have been for John the Baptist. How many of you like to be told that you're great? How many of you like to be told that you're beautiful? How many of you like to be told that you're the most intelligent person that, that, that an individual's ever met? <laughs> that sort of thing is intoxicating. Let's just go ahead and admit it. We all like to have our egos stroked. And if you say you don't, you're a liar. I mean, we all know that this is just human nature. What a temptation that would have been for John. And yet John repeated over and over again that he was not the Messiah. He said, I'm but the forerunner. I'm the one that's come to prepare the way. All of Jerusalem and Judea was going out to hear John to be baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when Jesus came to be baptized by John, it was John who said it ought to be the other way around. I shouldn't be baptizing you. You should be baptizing me. And right here in this passage, he makes it very clear. I must decrease so that what? He might increase. Jonathan Edwards, the great American theologian, described John the Baptist as a burning and shining lamp saying that his job was to produce light and produce heat. But the light that he shone was not a light that was on himself. It was not a spotlight ministry except in the sense that it shone the light on Christ. It was his humility that made John such an extraordinary person. Now, you'll notice that the problem here in this particular section, and I think this is why John mentions it, is that the issue was not so much with John but with John's disciples. You know, John had disciples as well. In fact, the Lord's first disciples had been John's disciples. So the idea of inventing disciples, in a sense, well, that really started with John. Now, many Jewish rabbis, of course, had disciples. But in terms of the Christian story, the first Christian disciples were actually disciples of John the Baptist. They'd been following him, and they were impressed by him. And even if you know that you're not the king... Let's just go ahead and admit it. It's nice to be close to the king. If you can't be in a position of power, it's nice to be close to those who are, are in power. We're getting ready to have an election on Tuesday. You don't think that people like to be close to those who are in positions of power? You better believe it. Our whole system is built on this. Well, the disciples were happy to be close to John the Baptist. You may recall that Jesus' own disciples, that's one of the reasons why they flocked to him. On one occasion, James and John came to Jesus and they said, Lord, when you come into your kingdom, we've got a little request for you. Grant that one of us may sit at your right hand and one of us may sit at your left. I, I suspect that they asked this more than once because one version of the story says that they sent their mother to ask. <laughs> I mean, who, who can refuse the mother? I mean, after all... 
They imagined Jesus coming in power, in splendor, in glory, and they wanted to sit at his right hand and at his left. Those were positions of honor, positions of authority, positions of power, and that's what we want. And all of a sudden, they see their master, yes, decreasing, and this other one increasing. And they come to him and they said, Lord, master, that one that you baptized on the other side, I say Lord and master intentionally because I think that's what they thought John the Baptist was. But they come to him and they said, master, the one who is on the other side who was with you, the one to whom you bore witness, He's over there baptizing people and everybody, all these people that have been coming out to hear you from Jerusalem, Judea, and all the surrounding region, they're going over to him. Now, what are you going to do about that? We can't allow that to happen. And John says this. He says, you yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. That's the greatness of John the Baptist. And it's an example for you and me to follow, especially if you're engaged in any kind of Christian ministry, it is so tempting, particularly if anybody has any bit of talent whatsoever. The tendency is to think that we do great things because we are great individuals. But John the Baptist had an incredible humility. Look at his response to the jealousy, quite frankly, of his own disciples. The first thing he says in verse 27 is that all position comes from God. All position comes from God. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. And that is something to remember whenever we're jealous of another individual. To remember that whatever gifts, whatever talents they have, those are gifts and those are talents that have been given to them by God. God gave them and God may take them away and sometimes that's what we want. We want God to take them away because then that makes us look better and then look worse. But the reality is John recognized that if Jesus was out there doing extraordinary things, it, because, it was because Jesus was God's chosen instrument. You know, I want you to know something. There are some people that are engaged in Christian ministry who need a big church. They really do. They need a big church. They need a church big enough for their congregation and a church big enough for their own ego. And I've known people like that. I really have. In fact, I was taking a bishop around on one occasion. This was years ago here in Charleston. He'd come here to our parish at St. James to do a preaching mission. He was an extraordinary individual. And we had a mutual acquaintance. And I asked him about this person who shall remain nameless because some of you know who he is. And I said, what do you think of so-and-so? And he says, oh. He says, just what I said. Oh, he needs a church as large as he has in order to accommodate his own ego. And I thought, man, that's really a rotten thing to say. But I wasn't going to disagree with the bishop at that point in my life. It? But then he went on after a pause and he said, but you know what? God uses him in spite of his ego. 
And you know, God can use us in spite of our frailties, our fallen nature. But sometimes, yes, God does use individuals, and they may be an irritant to us, but they are used in a mighty way. So we shouldn't be jealous of the fact that God has placed them where he has, because in the end, it's not about us, is it? It's really all about him. And John the Baptist recognized that. He said, look, if he is in a position of prominence, if he's on the ascendancy and I'm descending, it's because God wants it that way. The other thing, of course, is that John was self-aware. He recognized and he repeated it over and over again, and he repeats it here that he's not the Messiah. I think this is one of the great problems in our culture today. Most of us, whether we want to admit it or not, are not self-aware. We have a sense of how we are perceived by other people, but I wonder if we really know how other people perceive us. Most of us are not self-aware. Most of us, if the truth be known, think more highly of ourselves than we ought. That's one of the things the Apostle Paul warns us about in Romans chapter 12. He says, no one should think more highly of themselves than they ought. Let's just go ahead and admit it. When we do something that is impressive or good, don't we have a tendency to pat ourselves on the back and think to ourselves, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty good person. I think I shared with you a story on one occasion where I was in Beaufort. Um, I was living on Ladies Island at the time, which is right across the Beaufort River from downtown Charleston. I was the, I mean, excuse me, downtown Beaufort. I was the assistant at the time, so I had to drive to work. When I became the rector, I could walk through my backyard. But when I was the assistant, I had to drive to work. It was February, and it was a freezing day. It was a freezing day. And um, I had thrown a jacket in the back of the car, and I'm coming across the bridge, and I see this man. He must have been homeless, and he's coming across the bridge just absolutely shivering. And all he has on is shorts and a short sleeve T-shirt. And he's just, just, just shivering, just shivering. And I remember driving past him, getting to the bottom of the bridge and thinking, I got that coat right in the back. And it was a brand new coat, brand new. And I turned around and I went back and I opened the door and I handed him the coat. And then I went to church. Now I tell you that story not to tell you that I'm such a great and generous individual. But I can tell you, I had not reached the bottom of that bridge when I heard the Lord. I don't often hear him speak audibly to me, but he does. I'm thinking to myself, man, that was a really nice thing to do. You know, Jeff, that was really, that's biblical. <laughs> if they ask for your shirt, give them your tunic too. So I did it. And I remember thinking to myself, man, oh man, am I good. And I got to the office, and I just could not wait to tell somebody. And I did. I found one of my fellow priests, and I said, let me tell you what I just did, just like I told you. And I heard the Lord audibly speak. He said, you have your reward. That was my reward. I thought so highly of myself. I wanted other people to think highly of me, too. That's the tendency, isn't it? That's the tendency we all have, to think more highly of ourselves quite frankly, than we ought. 
Because what are we ultimately? Sinners, broken, fallen individuals in need of a savior. John the Baptist was self-aware. And because he was self-aware and recognized that it wasn't all about him, he recognized that it was all about Jesus. Jealousy is a cancer that will eat through your life, it will eat through a family, it will eat through a church. But when Jesus is preeminent, it all goes away. Some parting questions. Whatever position you have, whether it's a position that is high and low in society, whether it's a position that's high and low in the church, Here's the question, do you recognize whatever position you've been placed in, you've been placed in it by God, and you were to serve in that capacity however he deems best? Second, do you realize that you ought not to think more highly of yourself than you ought? And that's why I always tell people, if you really want to be a humble individual, and Jesus was described as a meek individual, a humble individual, and he had no reason to be humble. But if you really want to be a humble individual as a human being, one thing you can do is pray that God will open your eyes to see yourself as he sees you, not as you imagine yourself to be. I mentioned in the class on Romans this week that we have a number of ladies who, um, on a weekly basis, pray for revival in the life of the church. I'm so grateful for that. They pray for the clergy. Every Thursday before I go into Bible study, they pray for our clergy, they pray for our families, and they also pray for revival in the life of this congregation. Well, one of the things that I have noticed as I look back over the history of the church is that every great period of revival in the history of the church, no matter when it was, in the early days, in the Middle Ages, at the time of the Protestant Reformation, every time there has been a great revival in the life of the church, it has always, without exception, be preceded, been preceded by a time of great self-awareness and repentance. There will never be revival in the present day, ever, until God's people begin to see themselves as God sees them. Not as great and good, but as broken and fallen and in desperate need of a Savior. And when we do that, when we are cut to the quick, when we acknowledge and bewail our manifold sins and wickedness, then God the Holy Spirit can use us. Then we're an empty vessel that can be filled. Then we can go forth and in God's name do extraordinary things. Not because we're extraordinary individuals, but because God the Holy Spirit is an extraordinary Savior. John the Baptist did not think more highly of himself than he ought, and we, we shouldn't either. One more thing about John the Baptist, though. John the Baptist had his eyes fixed on Christ. Never took his eyes off Christ. And I think that's the key for us as well. Keep your eyes fixed on Christ. Don't worry about everyone else or every, everything else that's going on around, but keep your eyes fixed on Christ, and what you will discover is that he will become your primary concern. And everything else that we worry about you know, we just, we have a desire to be noticed, don't we? We do. We just have a desire to be noticed. But it's when he is lifted up. It's when he is lifted up that all men are drawn.
And we've got about 15 minutes left. Let's just go on to this next person here. Because I think John introduces us to these individuals, Nicodemus, John the Baptist, and this woman of Samaria for a very specific reason. We are meant to see ourselves in these individuals. I said that Nicodemus was a representative man. I think that this woman that Jesus encounters in John chapter 4 is a representative woman. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, that's interesting, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get the living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock? And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. And the woman said to him, I think this is one of the greatest understatements in all of Scripture, Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Robert Owen was a great social reformer in the 19th century. Um, he was an evangelical Christian in England. He had a great heart for the down and out, and in particular for children. There were no child labor laws in England in the Victorian era, and children were often abused. They were used as chimney sweeps, for example, which was a very dangerous business. They had to climb up on the top of these great roofs in London, and they had to go down the chimneys because they were small and clean them out by hand. And many children were maimed, many children were killed. Children were used in all kinds of terrible circumstances. And one of the worst places where children were, was used, were used was in the coal mines, uh, in the coal mines of Wales. Uh, because children could go down into sections that large men could not. And so little children would literally be sent down from the moment that they could walk and carry a pick and a shovel down into the coal mines. Children as young as 10 years of age down in the coal mines working. 
And Robert Owen really had a heart for these children. He wasn't the only one. There were other people um, who were great social reformers, but he was one of the greatest. And he had a love for these children working in the coal mines in his native Wales. And so the story goes that one day uh, he went to visit one of these coal mines. He'd never been there before. He'd only heard about it. And he went down into the depths, and he describes the journey down as terrifying. He said, you felt as though the earth was closing in on you. And in one of the dark recesses, one of the bowels of this great coal mine, he heard a child hacking and coughing. And he went down there, and there was a dim lamp, and there was a little boy about 10 years old who was working. It was covered in sweat and soot from top to bottom, and he was just hacking and coughing from all of the dust that was being stirred up. And Owen looked at him and he said, my son, he said, are you thirsty? And the little boy said, oh, yes, sir, I am. And Owen produced a canteen filled with water. And he handed it off to the boy. And the boy took it. And Owen only intended him to take a few swigs but the boy drank it dry. And then he handed it back to Owen. Robert Owen turned to leave, but he just couldn't do it. He turned around and he, he turned to the boy and he said, my boy, do you know Jesus? And the little boy said, no, sir. I don't believe anybody by that name works down here. You might want to try Shaft B, maybe Jesus works up there. And Owen says that what he found down there in the deep recesses of the earth was a little boy who was desperately thirsty, and not just thirsty for water, but desperately thirsty for Jesus Christ. Well, that's what Jesus encounters here. He had to increase because he was the one who could satisfy the thirst of the world John the Baptist was just the harbinger of the things to come. And what Jesus found as he passed through the region of Samaria was a woman who was desperately thirsty. She had come to draw water, but it wasn't a physical thirst that Jesus had come to satisfy. It was a spiritual thirst. Let me ask you a question. Do you have a spiritual thirst today? Because there's only one who can satisfy that. That's the interesting thing about water. Human beings can live without a lot of things. For long periods of time. We can live without food literally for weeks, some of us. We can live without sex, even though that is one of the great drives. Many people live without happiness for the greater part of their lives, but you can't live without water. Without water, you'll perish in 48 hours. And without Jesus Christ, you'll perish for eternity. Well, Jesus came passing through this region of Samaria. I think it's very interesting. The gospel says that he had to pass through Samaria. He was becoming so popular now, everybody was leaving John the Baptist and coming over to him that they're now ready to make him the king. Forget John the Baptist. John says he's not the king. He's saying this is the answer. This is the one who must increase. So they're ready to make Jesus the king, but he knows he's not the kind of king that they're anticipating or expecting. And so he leaves the region, we're told, and he's going back to Galilee. Judea's in the south, Galilee's in the north, and there's a swath of land between Judea and Galilee. And that swath of land was known as Samaria. It was occupied by people known as the Samaritans. 
who were hated by the Jews. And so it's interesting that the gospel says Jesus, in going to Galilee, had to pass through Samaria. Because technically speaking, that is not true. Jesus did not have to pass through Samaria to get from Judea to Galilee. Most Jews did not go through Samaria. They would take what is known as the longer Transjordan route. You could cross the Jordan River, pass up through what is now Jordan, recross into Galilee without ever stepping foot in Samaria. Now, it was much longer. It was about 100 miles longer, as a matter of fact. But most Jews would prefer to take that route, which was more dangerous, more circuitous, rather than step foot in Samaria because they hated the Samaritans. Listen, as much as Jews hated Greeks and Gentiles, they hated Samaritans even more. Because at least Greeks were ignorant. Samaritans, as far as they were concerned, were not. Who were the Samaritans? Well, they were a people who the Jews regarded as half-breeds. They were Jews who had been left in the land at the time that the Assyrians had taken over. And they had intermingled with pagan people. They had constructed their own temple and they had their own worship. It was sort of a mixture of pagan and Jewish. And for that, the Jewish, Jews regarded them as evil. When Jesus told the parable of the Good Samaritan, the real stinger in that story comes at the end when he describes the Samaritan as the hero. Because for most people, that was oxymoronic. There's no such thing as a good Samaritan. Well, Jesus comes through Samaria and says he has to pass through Samaria. Why does he have to pass through Samaria? Well, what I've just said, because there was a thirsty woman there. There was a thirsty woman. I think Jesus probably went through Samaria for this person alone. That's a good lesson for you and for me. He's the one who seeks and saves the lost. He's not just interested in the mass of humanity. He's interested in individuals. Jesus Christ is interested in you. He's interested in what you're struggling with. You may think that your struggles are insignificant compared to other people's and God has no time for you. I want you to understand God always has time for you. He is always concerned for the individual. If he had to pass through Samaria, it was because he had to meet this particular woman. This was a divine appointment. We're told that it happened in the heat of the day. That Jesus was weary. Yeah, that's so insightful, isn't it? That Jesus was weary. It's hard for us to imagine the Son of God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, getting weary. But Jesus took on our flesh. He endured everything that we endure. He became tired. He became frustrated. He became thirsty, and there he was. He comes down to this well. He's sitting on the edge of the well, probably, because he has nothing with which to draw water. The disciples have been sent off into town to find something to eat. Jesus is just sitting there. The sun is beating down on him, and around the bend there comes a woman. And she's coming in the heat of the day. Now, that's very important. She was coming in the heat of the day. Why was she coming in the heat of the day? Well, for a very specific reason. She didn't want to encounter anybody else. Most women in that day would draw all their water in the early morning hours for a couple of reasons. They would do it, number one, because it was cool. And oftentimes, you had to travel a great distance to the common well in order to get the water. And the second reason was this. You would gather with all the other women and talk about the town gossip. 
That's why he went early in the morning. This woman was coming in the heat of the day. Why? Because she was the town gossip. Everybody was talking about her. It's interesting that Jesus had to pass through Samaria to meet this woman because she had a number of strikes against her. First of all, she was a woman. Now, in the first century, understand, Jewish men would not even speak to a woman on the street, not even to their own wives or daughters most of the time. You just didn't do it. You spoke to them in the home, but you did not speak to them in public. So around the bend comes this woman. That's her first strike. Second strike is this. She's a Samaritan. We've already said that the Samaritans were hated by the Jews. And the third thing was this, was she was a notorious Samaritan woman. We know that because we've just read through the story. She's coming out in the middle of the day because she doesn't want anyone to talk about her because she is a woman who has had five husbands and is now living with a man who is not her husband. How many of you remember that old song back in the 60s, Harper Valley PTA? Anybody remember that song? This is Mrs. Johnson. This is her who wears her miniskirts way too high. This is, this is Mrs. Johnson right here. Reminds me of Lana Turner. You remember the old actress Lana Turner? Somebody once asked her if she was embarrassed by the fact that she'd had seven husbands. And she said, well, for the record, that wasn't my plan. She said, my original plan was to have one husband and seven children, but it just didn't turn out that way. That's this woman. That's this woman. She comes around the bend, heat of the day. She's exhausted. She's sweating, carrying her water pots. She doesn't want to run into anybody, let alone run into another man, because men, quite frankly, have not treated her well. That's why she's gone through them. Looking for love in all the wrong places, as the old country western song says. Desperate to find it, but not. And now living with a man who probably is going to be just another one in this long string of paramours. And she comes around the bend, and she's going to the well because she knows nobody will be there. And lo and behold, there is somebody sitting there. And oh, God, it's a man. And what is she going to do? What is she going to do? Well, you'll have to come back next week and find out. <laughs> I realize we're about out of time. But this is a representative woman. She represents us. She represents you. She represents me. She's desperately thirsty, just as we are. But she's about to encounter the one who alone can satisfy her. The one who is no mere prophet, no friend of the bridegroom, but the bridegroom himself. The one who, as John said, had come to be the savior of the world. And when she meets him, she's never the same. And when you meet him, you'll never be the same. You'll stop thinking more highly of yourself than you ought. You'll become a humble individual because next to him, you pale by comparison. But you will find in him as he ascends in your life and you decrease everything, everything your heart desires. Let us pray. 
Father, we give you thanks for these individuals that we encounter in the Gospel of John. We thank you for John the Baptist, for his humility. Oh, what a temptation it would have been for him to be the king, to be the savior, to say the word, but he recognized what he was and who Jesus was. He didn't think more highly of himself than he ought. He was perfectly happy with the position that he had been given. His job was to shine the light on the one who came to be the savior of the world, the living water who satisfies the deep thirst of the human soul. We thank you for this woman, Lord. We thank you that Jesus is not just interested in the John the Baptist or in the Nicodemuses of the world, but he's interested even in people like this notorious woman. Grant us the grace to see ourselves more like her than like John the Baptist. Grant us the grace to follow the example of John the Baptist, but to recognize that in order to do so, we must be like this notorious woman at the well. Give us a deep awareness, Lord, of our thirst, that thirst which we will do anything to satisfy and can only be quenched by Jesus himself, in whose name we pray.